It's good to see everybody. Can I uh, have you open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 17? If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you. And to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. As I just said, we have come into chapter 17. And uh, as we have made mention before, this is the real Lord's Prayer, not the one in Matthew 6. Forgive me uh, my sins as I forgive those that have sinned against me. Jesus could never have prayed that prayer. Okay? This is the real Lord's Prayer, where he is communing with his Father in prayer just hours before the cross. Phenomenal prayer. Um, this prayer is divided up into three main parts, just to keep it simple. Jesus prays for himself. Jesus prays for his disciples. And then Jesus prays for all believers. Now, we are currently in that second main part of this prayer, Jesus prays for his disciples. This section covers verses 6 to 19. And um, I've, I've tried to orchestrate or organize this uh, section around five key words because those are the ones that kind of jumped off the page at me. And uh, it's easier to, to memorize five key words than 13 or 14 verses. Uh, so the, the five key words that this section is built around is identification, revelation, supplication, separation, and then sanctification. Now this morning we find ourselves looking at the third part of this section of Jesus' prayer, supplication. And that's prayer, all right? Prayer. Let's look at verses 9 and 10 again. Jesus praying to his Father, Father, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all are, excuse me, and all mine are yours, and yours are mine. And here's what I want to key in on, and I am glorified in them. We started looking at this last week with the question, how is Jesus glorified in us? Who are, who are his disciples? And again, a disciple is any believer in Christ. Uh, disciples are not really committed believers, and the rest of us are just low-level grunt Christians. Uh, they're not the green beret of the Christian faith. Okay, uh, all Christians are disciples. The Greek word simply means a learner. We're all learning, and we should be learning and growing in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, being conformed more and more into his image. So last week we looked at the first three. Uh, there's five altogether. Uh, how is Jesus glorified in us who are his disciples? There's five ways. And uh, let me just quickly review the first three we looked at last time. First of all, Jesus is glorified in us by saving us, by saving us. Guys, people can argue with your doctrine, okay? You go out there, there's a lot of weird things out there, a lot of weird beliefs, right? And, you know, you present the gospel, and people want to argue with you. They want to dismiss it, or they want to say, well, that's not really the gospel, or this or that, or they can argue with your doctrine. They cannot argue with a changed life, bottom line. Bottom line, the way we glorify the Lord, yes, getting saved, that's obvious, that's the first step. But there's a lot of Christians who, well, all Christians are saved, obviously, but not all Christians are walking in the Spirit. There's a lot of carnal Christians out there, and the Bible says that many are going to be ashamed when the Lord appears for His church at the rapture. Now, they're saved, we're saved by grace, we're not saved by works. But the idea is that, do we want to see Him face to face on that day, at that moment when, you know, the angel shouts, the trumpet, trumpet blows, and Jesus says, come up here, and we see him face to face, do we want to be ashamed 
it is appearing because although we were saved, we were still living very carnal lives. I don't know about you. I don't want to, to see him that way. So first of all, Jesus is glorified in us by saving us, but also us going on to live transformed lives. Number two, Jesus is glorified in us by our trusting him in this life. This brings glory to God. When Christians are going through adversity, and yet they maintain, maintain a calm demeanor. Why are you so calm, your friends say, unsafe friends? I know what's going on in your life. How come you're so calm? Well, Jesus is on the throne. I, I don't have to worry about it. He's taking care of it. Again, Matthew 6, verses 25 to 34. Why are you worrying about what you're going to eat, where, where are you going to live? The pagans worry about this stuff. Those that don't have a heavenly father. He said, you know, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Live for eternity. Live for, you know, for the kingdom of God and everything you need in the physical. God will make sure you get it. He'll take care of you, okay? We have to trust him, though. And when the world sees us trusting our God, it glorifies him. Because it's like we're saying, hey, I got a heavenly father, and he's the best father you could ever have. He never lets me down. He always takes care of our needs. He's always there to protect and provide. I don't have to worry about a thing. Number three, Jesus is glorifying us when we live a holy life. Now, guys, as we pointed out last time, holiness is an attribute of God, which means we can't manufacture it. We can't manufacture it. It's got to come from the Holy Spirit who is living inside of us when we're Christians, right? The Holy Spirit pours out the attributes of God into our hearts. These attributes begin to grow. They become the fruit of the Spirit. It's what they become, right? But the idea is when man tries to manufacture holiness, you know what he winds up with? Long lists of do's and don'ts. You know, how long a guy can wear his hair, how short a girl can wear her dress. Can you smoke? Can you go to a dance? Can you watch a movie? I mean, the list gets quite long depending on what group you're associating it with. That's just Phariseeism. That's legalism. And it's just a false, man's false attempt to make himself holy in the eyes of God. The Greek word literally means to be set apart. That's what God wants. He's redeemed us out of the world even though we're still in the world. He is wanting us to draw closer and closer to him. And as we do, his character, uh, his nature fills us more and more. And we just begin to do naturally the things that please him and stay away from the things that don't please him. This is the idea. That's true holiness. And uh, the Bible says that God will work holiness in us as we abide in Christ. All right, we looked at those three last time. Number four. Jesus is glorified in us by our witness of him to this world. Now, this is somewhat of a review, but let me hit it again. As we have said in previous studies in John, one of Jesus' main purposes for coming to the earth was to bring glory to his Father. The other one, of course, was to die for our sins. Pretty important. But one of the things that Jesus, why he came to the earth was to glorify his Father in heaven. Look at verse 4. John 17, 4, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. As we have already said, God's glory involves or encompasses, listen, his intrinsic eternal attributes. His intrinsic eternal attributes, or in other words, the qualities that are found in his divine nature and in his divine nature alone. These would involve things like the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, and other things, right? 
And so Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection, put the attributes of God on display. And this allowed God to be glorified in that the world was able to see clearly what God was really like. You see, of course, the Jewish people were God's covenant people under the old covenant. And um, they had gotten a warped understanding and impression of God over the years, primarily because they tried to relate to God through the law, which they were always breaking. Therefore, they were always reaping the wrath of God, God's judgment. This caused them to believe that God was nothing but a vengeful, wrathful, fire-breathing God, a God they were basically terrified of, a God they felt impossible to draw close to. Now, there are some Christians who kind of have that impression of God. Why? I don't know. It's obvious they don't really know Him. I'm not saying they're not saved necessarily, but there's a lot of Christians who think that, you know, when things are going too well for too long, oh, that's it, God's going to get me now. That's their concept of God, right? He doesn't want us to have too much happiness, too much joy. When we start getting a little excessive in our happiness and joy, i got to cut it back down to size, right? Well, that's not the God of the Bible. That's the devil's lie about the character of God that people have bought into. So when Jesus came to the earth, yes, he came to die for our sins, but he also came in part to set the record straight as to what God was really like. We have looked at John chapter 1, verse 18 several times over the course of this study of, John's, of John 17, but let me read it to you out of the New Living Translation. John 1, 18. No one has seen God, in other words, has seen him in all of his fullness, of course, but the one and only Son is himself God and is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. Remember what Paul said in Colossians? Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. That was a Greek word that was used of, a, of how they would take a press and they would press uh, the image of, of Caesar onto a coin, literally stamping that coin with Caesar's image. God stamped his image on human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ so that we could see with our own eyes what God was really like. Again, when it comes to Jesus being glorified in us, it starts, and I'm reviewing a little bit, it starts with us getting saved and living a transformed life. And a good part of living a transformed life is to live in such a way that you constantly trust the Lord to lead you in the right paths in your life. One of my favorite passages, maybe yours as well, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. As we said last week, the Bible says that the just shall live by faith. Not just get saved by faith, that's where it starts. The just shall live by faith, which speaks of every day, moment by moment, trust in God's, listen, person, in his promises, and in his power. Is he real? Well, if you're saved, obviously you would say, of course he's real. Are his promises valid? Can you take him to the bank, or do they only apply to other people but not you? And if his promises are valid, does he have the power to bring them to pass. Remember Romans 4? What God has promised, he is what? Able to perform. You have to have that in your heart, and you must really have it in your heart. 
Now, as we said last time, guys, it's important to believe on Jesus as Savior and trust him each and every day of our lives here on earth. That's true. It is equally important to live a holy life. But in addition to this, each of us must be a faithful witness, a faithful witness of his divine character. And we must faithfully testify. That's what a witness does, right, on the, on the, the stand in a court of law. A witness testifies to what they have seen. Sometimes people ask me or say to me, I just got saved. How can I share my faith with anybody? I don't know anything yet, really. Well, what do, you, do you know Jesus saved you? Yeah, sure. Um, is your life changing because of it? Oh, yeah. Well, just share your testimony. Share how God is transforming your life. The theology, start out simple. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish in hell, but everlasting life. How much more do you really need, okay, if you're witnessing to the world, all right? But, you know, it starts with simple things. Um, but we need to testify to this world that God is real. Jesus saved me. Because the world's going to go, well, if he saved you, how come you're not changing at all? You're still the same person. You go out drinking with us, and you're smoking, and this and that. There's nothing worse than a, than a Christian who's a hypocrite. We need to get on the stick here. We need to get serious because the church of Jesus Christ has become very worldly and carnal. As Paul said in Romans, I think uh, in chapter is it 13, asleep in the light. But we have to, God wants to use us to glorify his name. And that be, is all about us living in such a way as that we are representing him to this world properly. Listen to what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 11 and 12. Therefore, we also uh, pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling to be a Christian, serve God, and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. He's given us all a work. He's given us all a ministry. It can't be... Um, Conducted in our own strength has to be conducted in the power of God. Verse 12, that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, listen, may be glorified in you. That's what it's all about. According to the grace of God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, before you can live this, you have to want this. There's a lot of Christians who really aren't that interested in bringing God glory. They're more interested in God bringing them glory building a kingdom on the earth, giving me all kinds of prosperity and all these things that they were promised by fast-talking TV preachers and other people in churches around this country and the world. You'll never hear in these churches the talk of the cross. They may give a lip service, but they never really pick it up and take it and, and, and live that way of, of a crucified life. This is what we need to understand, right? And... Um, as we've already pointed out in previous studies, we glorify the Lord, listen, by properly representing him in this world. By living lives that are consistent with his character, as Jesus did when he was on the earth and he glorified his father. He said, I do always those things that please my father. That was how he lived all the time. 
His mission was in part to glorify his father on the earth by showing people what God was really like. And now he's handed the baton over to us because he has ascended back to heaven. And now he says, now I want you to glorify me in this world. I want you to represent me. People need to know me. People are hurting. They're broken. They're helpless. They're hopeless. Sin has ravaged their lives. It's a real, it, it, they're, they're a mess. And the only hope the world will ever have is the hope they find in me. But they're never going to want that hope if they see my people living in sin, carnality, compromise, etc. Now, none of us are going to be perfect this side of glory. I understand that. But that doesn't give us an, a, an excuse to just go f be flat out carnal either. But it starts in the heart, right? Jesus said, I have glorified you, Father, on the earth. Remember, earlier in the evening, before the cross, in the upper room, he said to his disciples, when Philip asked Jesus, well, Lord, will you, will you show us the Father? We'll be satisfied. And Jesus said, Philip, have I been with you so long that you would ask me such a question? Show me the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. I am the perfect representation of the Father. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus' life. The compassion, the mercy. Was he soft on sin? No, but he was gracious towards sinners. Neither do I condemn thee, he told the woman caught in the act of adultery. But go and sin no more. That's the heart of our, our God, right? You know, the Christians in Thessalonica were commended by Paul for living lives that truly represented the Lord. And their witness had gone out into all the known world. Uh, why don't you turn there, 1 Thessalonians 1. I just thought this is just one passage that we could read on the subject, very practical. But I love the Thessalonian church. They were just a model church, and Paul was commending them. Corinth, he, he fired them off, you know, 20, what, 29 chapters? Uh, and they still were a mess. But the Thessalonian church, for whatever reason, they just loved the Lord. And they were just living for him, and Paul commended them that their witness had gone out into all the known world. 1 Thessalonians 1, starting with verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know, what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Paul and his team were very much examples. They weren't like these uh, TV preachers today or uh, guys like them that would, uh, you know, everyone existed to make them more wealthy. Uh, Paul would come into town. He had a trade. He was a tent maker. He didn't, didn't take any money from the churches. He always worked with his own hands, not only to supply his own needs and the needs of the team he brought, but also any others in the church that needed help. He was a true representative. He said, and you followed my example is what he was saying to them, right? Um, verse 6, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the words in much affliction, the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that, listen, you became examples to all who are in Macedonia and Achaia, that's modern Greece, who believe. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. 
For they themselves declare. What declare? Your good works. Your transformed lives. Declare, you know, what manner of entry we had into you, how that you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. How important, guys. How important. That's how we glorify Jesus. I'll give you one more. Jesus is glorified in us when we serve him and work to build his kingdom on the earth. He said again, Jesus is glorified in us when we serve him and work to build his kingdom on earth. Colossians 1 verse 10, Paul is praying for the Colossian Christians. He says that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being, listen, fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Guys, I think you know this. We have been saved to serve, not to sit and spectate. We have been saved to serve. Listen to what Paul said in Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not the result of your works, lest any should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Guys, we are not saved by works, of course, but we are saved for good works. The New Testament has a lot to say about Christians living, serv- uh, being servants to bring God glory uh, as they work to build his kingdom. I'll just give you three. I'll just read them. You can write down the references. Titus 2.14. Paul said, uh, uh, Who, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed, the sins of the old life, and purify for himself his own special people, listen, zealous for good works. Galatians 6, verse 9. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Keep serving God. Romans 12, 11, Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Let me just say this, that the amount of love you have for God inwardly, the amount of love you have for God inwardly, will be directly proportioned to how fervently and faithfully you serve him outwardly. I, I don't know how else to put it. I don't think it's that hard to, to see that if you absolutely are in love with the Lord, it's going gonna, it's gonna to demonstrate itself in the way we live and how we serve him, how we live for him, right? One pastor put it bluntly, and I'll just read him saying it to you so that you don't think I'm saying it directly. I'll just read it. One pastor put it bluntly, said, and I quote, many Christians are lazy. They sit around and do nothing, content, as the hymn says, to be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease. While all around there are suffering people, lonely people, people who need compassion, help, and above all, the gospel. We need to wake up the church of Jesus Christ. We need to wake up ourselves. We need to sense the calling of the Holy Spirit in the area of our service instead of enjoying our luxury, comfort, and time and our time selfishly as we often do, end quote. Guys, I'm convinced, as the Bible says, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro about the face of the whole earth looking for those whose hearts are loyal that he might show himself strong through. In other words, he wants to use you more than you want to be used. However, there are some Christians that really don't want to be used. Maybe you've heard some say, 
I'm saved. That's it. That's all I care about. Well, don't you want to serve the Lord? Well, not, not really, not necessarily. I, I got a pastor who does that. This is a true story. I'm not going to go into more detail than that. Okay? Um, they don't need me. They got the pastors to do all that work. Well, they sit home and watch TV or I'm not against golf, but, you know, excessive sports and golf and this and that. Um, let me just tell you this. This is going to seem like a, like a, a detour that's not connected to the subject, but it is. So hang in there. Even if you think I'm getting off the subject, I'm really not. The subject is we glorify Jesus when we serve him and work to build his kingdom here on the earth. That's the subject of this final point, right? When David was a lowly shepherd living out in the fields, right? Surround, the fields surrounding Bethlehem, keeping watch over his father's flock, writing songs of praise to the Lord. That became half the book of Psalms, the, the official hymnal of the Jewish people in the temple. He was close to God. He was close to God. During the 10 years when he was a fugitive, running for his life from King Saul, who was trying to kill him, living in caves out in the Judean wilderness, he was close to God. Because adversity has a way of driving us close to God. But after King David, after he became king of Israel for 20 years, winning battle after battle and amassing great wealth, David, I believe David grew complacent and his heart wasn't as close to the Lord as it had once been. Why do I say that? I say it because he decides to retire and let others fight the battles of the Lord while he stayed home to enjoy his brand new palace. You can read about that, 2 Samuel 11, verse 1 and following. In the spring of the year when kings go out to battle, David sent his general Joab and he stayed back in Jerusalem. Let the younger guys live in the trenches. I've earned my retirement. I just want to kick back and enjoy my palace. We'll get back to that in a second. But, uh, guys, this always marks a decline in spiritual passion for God when we no longer want to be involved in our service for God. You know, when Caleb was 85 years old, book of Joshua, Joshua was um, dividing up the land to give each a portion, and they were required to drive the enemy out of their own portion of land in the promised land, right? And a lot of them wanted easy parcels. You know, they wanted an easy life, you know? Caleb, 85, said, you know, Joshua, I don't want an easy life. I, I got a lot of fight left in me. I feel like I want my, my days ahead to be the greatest in my life for God. So I'll tell you what I want. I want those mountains that nobody wants where the giants live. Give me that for my inheritance because I want to go and fight my greatest battles later in life. Not, I, I don't want to be one of those guys, I believe is what he was saying, that remembers the good old days, you know? I saw a guy wearing a T-shirt one time at a, a Christian uh, uh, event. The older I get, the better I was. <laughs> Some guys are legends in their own mind. When they hit a certain age, my goodness, they were, you know, they were just incredible and in everything. Caleb said, man, I don't want to sit on my porch, you know, uh, eating lasagna that I cook with a torch, 
remembering the good old days. That's a, that's a what, what is it, Carmen song, right? So when you're Italian, it affects everything. But anyways. So give me the mountain so I can, I can fight my greatest battles going forward. However, we don't see that kind of zeal in the heart of God, for God in the, in the heart of David, who really was only in his mid-50s when he decided to retire from active duty and let others fight the battles of the Lord. You know what happened. He had a lot of free time on his hand, walked on the top of his palace, which was a patio, saw a woman bathing. On palace was always lifted up. She was bathing on her rooftop down below, a very beautiful woman named Bathsheba. You remember the story. He sent his servants, they took her, and he lay with her that night. Guys, I personally think David was in a backslidden state when he sinned with Bathsheba. And was going through what we might call today a midlife crisis. A midlife crisis. Bathsheba was probably 20 to 30 years younger than David. And many men who are going through a midlife crisis try to recapture their youth by having an affair with a younger woman. And even though David did wind up marrying this gal, well, the damage to his walk with God and his service for God was already done. He was never the same as a leader, a father, or a husband after this. Why did he do it? Why did he sacrifice so much for so little? An evening of pleasure? The psychology behind David's sin is irrelevant. He did it, and that settles it. The problem today in our culture, when it comes to this kind of thing, is to spend months, if not years, in counseling or therapy, trying to pinpoint why a person who has taken years to build a successful business or ministry, has a loving wife and beautiful children, why they would throw it all away to have a fling with a younger woman. I don't think it's that hard to figure out. I think God put his finger on it way back in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. When he said, sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you must subdue it and not and, and be its master. Or to put it another way, we all have a sinful fallen nature that wants to control us, to satisfy its sinful desires. But as long as a Christian, listen, is staying close to God, walking in the Spirit, and serving the Lord, very important component, the f sin or the flesh will not be able to control them. Galatians 5.16, if we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Guys, it's when a Christian becomes complacent in their walk with God, restless to the point where the things of God no longer satisfy them anymore, that's when they, listen, that's when they begin to turn back to the world, to the things of the world, to find fulfillment once again. Now, unfortunately, this happened to David, um, it didn't last long, but it did happen to a man after God's own heart. It really happened to his son Solomon, though. It really happened to his son Solomon. So, this is where you're going to think I'm taking a detour. Hang in there. Solomon was the son of King David and Bathsheba. After they got married, they had Solomon. Solomon's childhood wasn't perfect. His family had its share of problems. But one thing Solomon did receive from his father was a rich spiritual heritage overall. Now, overall, in general. I mean, David wasn't a perfect man, as we just said. 
He committed some pretty serious sins in the course of his life. But the one thing that David had going for him was he did have a heart for God. You could have a heart for God and still blow it. That doesn't mean you're perfect because you're a man or woman after God's own heart. We, you know, we still live in these fallen bodies with a fallen nature. But David did have a heart that loved God, a heart he tried to pass along to his son Solomon on the day Solomon was coronated to be the new king of Israel. I'll just read it to you. 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a loyal heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands all the intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, an ongoing thing is the idea. He will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Well, Solomon started out pretty well in his relationship with God as a young king. You can read 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 3 through 13. After a day where they just worshipped God with thousands of animal sacrifices, had an incredible time as a nation worshipping God, uh, God appears to Solomon in a dream that night and says to him, Ask me whatever you will and I'll give it to you. And Solomon said, Well, Lord... I'm a young guy. I, I don't know how to be a king, really. It put me in charge of this great people of yours, and I don't really know how to come in, go out as a king. I don't really know anything about being a king. And so, therefore, I'm asking you to give me wisdom. I'm the chief judge of Israel. I'm asking you to give me wisdom so that when your people come before me, I can render wise verdicts and decisions and god was pleased with that he said because you didn't ask for the lives of your enemy or long life for yourself or riches for yourself but you asked for wisdom that you could be a better king for me and for my people i will give you the wisdom and everything else wow good day it's a good day be careful of those mountaintop experiences there's always a valley somewhere right it's always a valley somewhere. After a while, it seemed that something began to be missing. And, well, I don't know if it was ever really missing, but it was, he began to notice it. That something was missing in his life. His heart seemed unsatisfied and empty. Uh, and slowly, he began to drift away from the Lord. And it's always slowly. That's how it always works. He began to slowly drift away from the Lord to pursue other things, like many Christians I've seen over the years. Start out loving God with all their heart, they begin to drift. After a while, you don't even know where they are. Now, David had admonished him to serve the Lord with a loyal heart, right? On the day of his coronation. But the Holy Spirit tells us later in 1 Kings 11:4 that Solomon's heart was not loyal to the Lord his God. The word loyal... Uh, in the Hebrew, carries with it the idea of completeness or wholeheartedness. Solomon's heart was not completely given over to God. Solomon had a divided heart. The Hebrew word literally means at peace with. Solomon's heart was not at peace with God. Now, that doesn't mean he wasn't saved. I believe Solomon was definitely saved. But his heart was still restless. His relationship with God didn't really satisfy him like it did his father David. David expressed his heart, and again, he was not a perfect man, but he expressed his heart in Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I might always be in the presence of God, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to forever behold the beauty of the Lord. This is David's heart. God was all he needed. God blessed the person who really only needs God, who loves him that much. They're not looking for God in the world, they don't have a divided heart, it's a single heart. 
because of it, though, Solomon's heart was not really totally given over to God. And so he began to turn away from the Lord, looking to fill the void. And this is what always happens. Looking to fill the void with other things. And guys, this is where he stopped working for God's kingdom and really started focusing on his own kingdom. How do we glorify Jesus? By serving him and building his kingdom on the earth. The devil knows that. He doesn't want you to glorify God. So he'll begin to emphasize or, or uh, you know, in your heart the things that are, you're unhappy about. Things that seem like you're missing something. To get you to focus on yourself so that you don't focus on God's kingdom. And so Solomon, from this point in his young life, spent the better part of the rest of his life in a backslidden state, chasing happiness in a number of different ways. He multiplied gold and wives and horses to himself, the very thing that God had forbidden the kings of Israel from doing in Deuteronomy 17, verse 17, lest God said they should turn, uh, these things should turn his heart away from God, which is exactly what wound up happening in Solomon's life. But at the end of his life, he comes back to God and writes Ecclesi the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, most commentators believe that Solomon wrote Proverbs in the Song of Solomon early in his life during the years he walked with God. But near the end of his life, he wrote Ecclesiastes. Now, in that book, and you can read it on your own, in that book, he is looking, looking back over his life, lamenting, listen, lamenting the mistakes he had made and all the vain things he had pursued trying to find happiness and fulfillment. One of Solomon's favorite words in the book is the word vanity. It appears 38 times. It's the Hebrew word hevel, which basically means emptiness, futility, and vapor. In other words, whatever disappears quickly leaves nothing behind and does not satisfy is considered hevel. Some people have translated it vanity or soap bubbles. Soap bubbles. Now, you're not going to properly understand or interpret this book. And again, we're in John. We're not going to study Ecclesiastes. But I have to throw some of this out so you understand the point I'm trying to make. You're not going to properly interpret the book of Ecclesiastes nor understand what God is trying to communicate to you through it if you don't understand the key phrase that sheds light on where Solomon is coming from in this book. The key phrase is, listen, under the sun. S-U-N, under the sun, which occurs 29 times in the book, along with the parallel phrase, under heaven. Together they give us the perspective from which Solomon is writing about life, a life that was lived for the most part, listen, in a backslidden state. He is looking at life from a human earthly perspective, not from a heavenly or eternal perspective. As you read the book and listen to Solomon's pessimistic view of life, Keep in mind his perspective from which he is writing the book. He is examining and evaluating life under the sun, under heaven. In other words, life lived from an entirely earthly, materialistic perspective. Life without God in the practical. I'm not saying he wasn't saved. I'm just saying, though, in his everyday walk, God was missing. He was consumed with earthly pleasures, earthly goals. Again, read the book. Listen to the conclusion he comes to after all this chasing after meaning and happiness in life. Ecclesiastes 2.17, So I came to hate life because everything done here under the sun is so troubling. Everything is meaningless, like chasing the wind. Verses 22 and 3, 
So what do people get in this life for all their hard work and anxiety? All their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night their minds cannot rest. It is all meaningless. Guys, so many people are making the same mistake that Solomon made. Thinking that more money is going to bring happiness, or if their career or business takes off, or they have more pleasure, whether it's material uh, things or sexual encounters, uh, or maybe a new house. That's what I need, a new house. Maybe a new spouse to go with that new house. I don't know what they're thinking. Some of them, you know, a new car is going to do it, a boat, something like that, or an exotic vacation. Some of them think if they go back to school with their BA, their MA, and their PhD, Solomon boasted about his uh, knowledge, right? He was a very brilliant guy. But let me just say this, most people aren't really satisfied or happy in life. They still believe with a little more of this or that, they will find true happiness. It's what the Bible calls the deceitfulness of riches. But it's not always riches with some people. It's fame. Again, it's a degree in something, okay? So most people are striving. They're not happy, but they think, if I go after this or that, a little more of this or that, I'll be happy. Here's where Solomon had an advantage over all of them. Here it is. He, was, he had a lot more of everything. They're thinking a little more of this or that. He had a lot more of everything. But it led him to a point of crisis that few people ever come to because they're not rich enough. He had it all. He had done it all. He had nothing left to experience, nothing left to look forward to. He had maxed out life and was still empty and miserable. And the conclusion he comes to is everything in life is empty and meaningless and vain. And you say to yourself, well, that's pretty depressing, which is why a lot of Christians don't read Ecclesiastes. It's too depressing. But you have to understand what the Holy Spirit is doing. All right? You have to understand what... Yeah, I agree with Solomon in this point. Everything in life is empty and meaningless and vain, but life where? Under the sun. S-U-N, right? Or in other words, life apart from God. I mean, Ecclesiastes is a pretty dark book. But it ends with a gem. And the darkness of the book is what accentuates the brilliance of the diamond, you might say, the gem of truth. When you were going to buy an engagement ring or for your future wife uh, or a wedding ring, you know, you go into the jeweler, right? And what did he or she do? Took out a piece of black velvet, laid it on the counter. Then they began to take out various stones, right? And against the backdrop of the black velvet, the stone really what? Popped. The brilliance was made all the more incredible. Ecclesiastes is God taking a black piece of velvet, you might say, and, and, and laying it out there for us because he wants to highlight the brilliance of a gem of wisdom he puts at the very end of the book. At the very end of the book, okay? Um, that's where Solomon places this diamond of wisdom. The whole book, book comes down to the last two verses, which he condenses really into a single statement. Um, about everything that's important in life. We'll end with this, okay? At the end of the book, but let me just say this, at the end of the book, before I get to the pearl or the gem of wisdom, at the end of the book, Solomon admonishes young people especially, young people especially to turn to God early in life 
and not to make the same mistakes he made. He basically said, my dad was right. I should have listened to him. I was a young guy. He told me, seek the Lord with all your heart. You know, serve him with a willing heart, loyal mind. You know, he'll always be found by you. He'll be, bless you. He'll give you the fulfillment, and he'll just, it'll be incredible. Solomon said, I should have listened to my dad. People think I'm the wisest guy in the world. I wasn't so wise in that regard. I was pretty stupid. You're always pretty stupid if you think the world's got anything that you need to be happy. It's all baubles and fake gold and, you know, fake everything. I wish more young people today would understand that they wouldn't have to go in this long, circuitous route trying to find happiness in the world, only coming back at the end of their lives to find out, no, God, it's all about God. It's always been about God. He's the only one that can make me happy and fulfilled and so on. And this is the climax and conclusion that Solomon has wanted to bring us to throughout the entire book. I'll just read you verse 13. But he says, now all has been heard. I've, I've, I've laid it all out. I've I got nothing more to say. Here's the conclusion. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. And he goes on to talk about eternity. Let me paraphrase for you. The most important thing in life is that you love and obey God and live for eternity. Satan is a master rip-off artist. He'll try to rip you off from eternal rewards. Try to indulge your flesh right now for a while, for a time. The pleasures of sin do, do excuse me, uh, the pleasure of sin is, is short-lived, but it's, it's, it's real. Sin brings pleasure, but it's, it's short-lived. Leads to bondage. But living for God has eternal rewards to it. Guys, let me just say this in closing. The Christian life isn't hard to understand. <gasps> what? I'll say it again. Christian life is not hard to understand. I'm not saying it's easy to live. I'm just saying it's not hard to understand, right? It's a choice between loving God and living for him or loving yourself and living for your own pleasures. That's it in a nutshell. It's either life under the sun, S-U-N, or life in the sun, capital S-O-N. That's it. Pretty simple when you get right down to it, right? What did Joshua say? As for me and my house, we're going to do what? We're going to serve the Lord. Wise man. Wise man. So how is Jesus glorified in us who are his disciples? Jesus is glorified in us by saving us and then us going on to live a transformed life. Jesus is glorified in us by our trusting him in this life. Jesus is glorified in us when we live a holy life, a separated life. Jesus is glorified in us by our witness of him in this, uh, to this world. Are we properly representing him? And finally, Jesus is glorified in us when we serve him and work to build his kingdom on the earth. Amen? We'll pick it up next time, God willing. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this little pearl of wisdom Yeah, in Ecclesiastes, but uh, how, Lord, you, Lord Jesus, said that you desire us as your disciples to glorify you in this earth. Now, we've talked about that. We can't plead ignorance. Give us grace, Lord. 
to passionately desire to bring you glory in everything we have talked about. Bring these to our attention day and night, that we will constantly bury them in our hearts and by your grace live them out in our lives. We thank you for this time. We ask you to bless it and all these studies going forward in Jesus' precious name. Amen.